0: please, Gospel of John chapter 19. It is good to be back in Berean Baptist Church and to stand here in the pulpit once again, and I'm very happy that we're able to come back to the study in the Gospel of John. We're winding down our study now, and in just uh, three or four weeks or so, we'll be through after a More than a year and a half of study in this gospel, but it's been a great study, and we thank the Lord for the opportunity that we've had uh, to look into God's Word and and talk about the many things that, that John brings out here about the life of Jesus. Now, two weeks ago, when we last looked at this 19th chapter, I guess it's been three weeks now, but three weeks ago, when we last looked at this 19th chapter, we spoke about the spear that pierced the side of Jesus, And we talked about how the blood and the water flowed from Jesus' side. And I spoke about how that blood represents the justification from our sins. That once we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins and takes all of our sins away. And because of Christ's blood and because of justification, we now have a new legal standing uh, before God. No longer are we under God's wrath. The punishment for sin has been taken away. And that happens because the blood of Jesus was shed for us. But the Bible also tells us that not only did the blood come from his side, but there was also water. And I spoke about how the water represents the cleansing of our daily defilement of sin. So we're both justified and sanctified by the blood and the water that flowed from the Jesus side. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand that and to know that when Jesus went on the cross and when he had finished dying for us there, when he said, "'It is finished,' That all things that were necessary for our salvation was accomplished on the cross. And we can look to Jesus for our salvation. So we're justified from the penalty of sin, and we're sanctified, and our lives are saved and by the washing of the water of God's word. Now, all of that, the death of Jesus on the cross and the things that I've just spoken to you about, are the gospel of Jesus Christ. But is that really all of the gospel of Christ? Well, in fact, it's not because there are two other very important parts that are considered to be the gospel. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul gave us a definition of the gospel. And in verse number 1, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Then he went on to verse number 3, and he said there, um, For I have delivered unto you first of all, "...that which I received, how that Christ died according to the Scriptures..." And then I want you to listen to this part. "...and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures." So there Paul divides the gospel actually into three parts. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Christ died on the cross, he was buried in the tomb, and then he arose again on the third day. And that is the true gospel of Jesus Christ... The part of that that we're concerned about today is the burial of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. We're going to talk about the significance of the burial of Jesus Christ. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read the Scriptures today from John chapter 19. And we'll begin reading with verse number 38. And here John writes, After this... "'After this,' and what he means is, "'after that spear had pierced the side of Jesus "'and the blood and the water flowed out, when it was apparent that Jesus was dead, "'he says, "'After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, "'but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. "'And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus.' And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher where was never yet man laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We just thank you so much to be back in this place preaching your word. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to the hearts of everyone here today. May we understand your word very clearly, and may there be a message here that will draw our hearts closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the story of Christ's death, there's a very remarkable part when you think about what happened to the body of Jesus. Normally, a body that was crucified, or a person that was crucified, rather, would hang on the cross for several days. It would take several days for that person to die. And then after the person was dead, the Romans would not take the body down from the cross Rather, they would leave that rotting carcass there for several days. Sometimes the sun would burst the bodies open. Birds would come and they would eat the parts of the, of the body as it was hanging there. So normally the Romans would not take the body down from the cross because they considered that to be a deterrent to future crimes. So they wanted to strike fear into the people's hearts by leaving the bodies on the cross But the death of Jesus was very much different because it didn't take Jesus several days to die. Instead, in only six hours' time of crucifixion, in the time of six hours that he was on the cross, Jesus died. And we know the reason that he died. It wasn't because they took his life from him, but it was because Jesus gave up his life. He voluntarily commanded his life to expire. Now, normally, as I said, they would leave the body on the cross, but it was different in the crucifixion of Jesus because the Romans did uh, consider the Jewish holy days. They wanted to keep the peace, and so they let the Jews have their holy days. And the holy days of the Jews said that no one could be hanging on a cross. No one who was killed could not be buried. And so the Jews asked that his body be taken down because the next day was the day that they were going to celebrate the Passover. But as we think about that, who would you think that would be there to take down the body of Jesus? Wouldn't you think that perhaps John would have been there or maybe Peter would have gone? Maybe Philip or Matthew, maybe one of the 12 disciples. They would have been the ones to go and claim the body of Jesus and to take it down from the cross. But that's not what happened. It, w- it wasn't... These disciples who lived and walked with Jesus for the three years of his public ministry, they weren't the ones who came and took down Jesus' body. Instead, it was two men that we totally would not expect. Two very unlikely men came and claimed the body of Jesus, and they prepared his body for the burial. I'd like to talk to you about that first today. I'd like us to consider the men at the burial of Jesus. Who were these men that came and took down the body of Jesus, and what did they do? Well, surprisingly to us, they were secret disciples. We were first introduced to secret discipleship back in John chapter 12. And secret disciples were ones who would not come out openly and claim that they were followers of Jesus. The Bible tells us in John chapter 12 that there were many of the Jews, some of the Jewish leaders, who did believe on Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him openly. And John describes for us why they wouldn't do that, and his reason was because he said they loved the praise of men more than they love the praise of God. But here we see in the Scriptures that there are two men who were formerly secret disciples, and they came and they claimed the body of Jesus. Well, who were these two men who took the body down? Well, the first one was Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph was a rich man. He was a wealthy man. And he went and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a very influential man. He went to Pilate and he said, "'I'd like to have the body of Jesus.'" Now, we need to think about that because I think that we see in Joseph's request that he take the body of Jesus, that the plan of God is being perfectly played out. This is also in God's wise design that the body of Jesus would be taken care of in the proper manner, exactly as the Scripture said that it would. Think for just a moment. What if it was John or Peter who had gone to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus? Do you think that either one of those men, common men, men who are just fishermen, that they could go and, and have an audience with Pilate, who was the governor of Judea? Could they just walk up to Pilate and say to him, we'd like to have the body of Jesus? And how likely do you think that Pilate would have been to give those men his body? So they couldn't ask for it. If I go today and I go to the White House, and I knock on the White House door and say, hey, I'd like to speak to President Bush. How likely do you think that I would be to get in to have an audience with President Bush? If, even if I even got to the front door to begin with in this day of terrorism, they'd lock me up, they'd send me off to Gitmo somewhere, and I'd never have a chance of talking to President Bush. Well, it wasn't much different for these men. Just not anybody could go in and claim an audience or speak to, Roman, to the Roman governor. You could make that request. But Joseph was not a common person. He was a rich man. He was an influential man. The Bible tells us that he was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And if you wanted to compare that to something like being a senator, a, a senator in the government, that's the kind of man that Joseph was. And so he could go to Pilate. He could ask for the body, and Pilate would grant his request. Now, what does that teach us? Well, I think it shows us that God can use rich people. Now, you know it doesn't often happen that way because rich people, most rich people, are not very interested in the things of God. Most rich people are concerned about two things, getting money and holding on to their money. That's what most rich people are concerned with. And that's why Jesus taught the disciples about riches. Do you remember that he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching the disciples that people who love their riches, who love what they have, who want to hold on to what they have, they're not likely to make it into the kingdom of God. God has to be first. Jesus has to be first. Personal relationship with him is what all people need. Now today, I don't know if there's anybody in our congregation who's rich. But one thing that I do know, whatever you have, whatever it may be, whatever God has given you, use your wealth, use your influence, use all of your resources in the service of God. God's the one who gave it all anyway. And so we ought to give back to God what he's given to us. And God gives us our wealth, he gives us our resources in order that we might be able to help other people. But not only did Joseph have influence to gain the body of Jesus, but Joseph was also a man who was willing to use his possessions. He used what God gave him. Now, most bodies that were taken down from the cross, they would have been discarded. They would have been thrown into just any old hole in the ground anywhere. Some of the bodies were taken out and thrown into the garbage dump outside of the city walls. Some of them went into the potter's field. That was a place that the Jews had purchased to bury strangers and and people that were poor. They buried them in the potter's field. But the place where Jesus was buried was a very expensive place. This wasn't just a natural cave that was in a rock where they placed his body. No, this was one that was hewn out of the rock. Very carefully, it was carved out of the rock to make a tomb. At much expense, it was carved out of the rock. And it so happens that that tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph gave the very expensive place that he had for his own burial in order for them to place the body of Jesus. Now, most of you here today, you're probably thinking, well, how does that apply to me? I'm not a rich person. I'm not an influential person. I don't have anything like that. So this must not be a message that's for me. But I want you to think about what you do have. Do you know that compared to most countries of the world, that those of us who live in America are considered to be rich? We have problems today with illegal immigration, and why is that? Because there are people who want to come to America because America is a land of opportunity. They want to get into America because they consider us to be rich, and they want that life for themselves. People all over the world are fighting just to eke out an existence, just to get the basic necessities of life. If I can get food, if I, if I can get shelter, if I can get those things, I, I need clothing, I need all of those things, the basic necessities of life. But if we look over our congregation today, look at, our, look at us, most of us look like we've eaten pretty well. Most of you don't look like you've missed too many meals. You dress very nicely when you came to church today. When you go home today, it's going to be to a house or an apartment that has a solid roof over your head. Most of you have heat in the wintertime, I think. Most of you have air conditioning in the summer. And so if you look at it that way, we're rich. Most of the world looks at us as being rich. And you know, this is the way it is for most Americans. We have become a fat, lazy people. We're a complaining people. I have to work 40 hours a week. You mean I've got to work 40 hours a week? And I only get three weeks of vacation a year? We're far better off than people in the rest of the world. And when you think about it, what Jesus said about the camel going through the eye of a needle is true of Americans today. We're rich, we're consumed with what we have, and that's all that we're interested in. We want to get what we have and hold on to all the things that we have. So you're rich. You need to think a little bit more today about turning loose of what you have and using what you have for the glory of God. We're at a very unusual juncture uh, in this year, our fiscal year for our church. This does not happen very often, but we're very seriously behind in our budget, and it's very... Easy to understand because there are a lot of people who have not been bringing members of our church and so forth that have not been bringing their tithes and their offerings to church as they should and giving God what belongs to Him. Folks, what we need to do is to make sure that we are not possessed by our possessions. Take what we have and use that for God. Use what you have for God's glory. The Bible says that money is not evil and God's not angry at people because they're rich. But the Bible does have something to say about money. It says the, 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 the money is the root of all evil. And the love that people have for money and the desire to keep it for themselves ruins their influence for God. God wants us to use our wealth and in whatever influence that we might have in his service. So Joseph finally came to the place. He had been a secret disciple, but he finally came to the place where he surrendered what God had given him and he used it. In the burial of Jesus. He loved the Lord. Now there was also another man at this burial. And his name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a very religious man. We first learn about Nicodemus in that famous chapter in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a religious Pharisee. He's the one that the Bible says who came to Jesus at night. I don't know if you've noticed it before... ...but every time that you see Nicodemus mentioned in Scripture... ...there's always that little description right next to his name. He's the one who came by night. And as you know, we've we've said this before... ...that he was the first Nick at night. He, he He was one who came to Jesus during the night. And the reason that he did was because he was a secret disciple. He didn't want anybody to know that he was a real follower of Christ. So he sneaked around at night and he came to see Jesus... Why? Because he was just like all of those other people. He wanted the approval of men more than he wanted the approval of God. And religious people all across the world are very much like that. They want people to know that they're religious. Oh, they they like to tout the fact that they are religious, but they really don't want to sacrifice very much for their religion. Now, Nicodemus was one of those self-righteous Pharisees. He's one who kept the laws of God, we might say, to the nth degree. He was a man who memorized the Torah. He knew the Scriptures. Probably he could quote more Scripture than any person in this room today. Nicodemus was a man who gave his tithes. He gave above his tithes. He was a person who fasted. He was a man who prayed. He gave alms to the poor. But Jesus listened to him brag about all the things that he did. And Jesus said to him, hold on just a minute, Nicodemus. Slow down just a little bit. Don't get so excited. And he said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that the Bible never says that from that point that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus? It doesn't say that he declared him openly. He didn't jump on Jesus' bandwagon to follow Jesus around where he went. No, he still remained a secret disciple until we see him right here, right at the burial of Jesus. That's when he declares his faith, and that's when he also comes to claim the body of Jesus. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that God can change religious people. Even a person who's very religious, God can change his heart as well and make him what he should be. And don't you know that there are a lot of religious people that they just don't want to get involved in things... They don't really want to pick up their stuff and follow Jesus and go after him. They don't want to get involved. There are many closet Christians today who sit around and they will not tell people about their faith. They will not declare that they're following Christ. They don't want anybody to know that they're Christians. They love the secrecy of it. They don't want to tell people about it. They don't want to get involved. Why is it that there are people who come to church and they sit and they listen to the messages. Maybe they sit on the back row, and this is not an indictment of anybody sitting on the back row. But, but that people sit on the back row and they say, I just don't want to get involved. I like to watch. I like to see what goes on. I like to see the show up there and see what everybody's doing. But I don't want to get involved in that. Why don't they come forward? Why don't they identify with Christ in baptism? Why don't they become a member of the Lord's church? The reason they don't is because they're content with their secrecy. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to work for it to do anything. They're just content to be secret disciples, and secrecy is the preferred method. But let's hold on just a minute here, because let's look at Joseph and Nicodemus. For some reason, they changed their minds. Something happened to them. They had been secret disciples. They had not declared Jesus openly why he lived, But now here they are in the moment of Jesus' death, and now it's very apparent that they are believers in Jesus. What was it? What is it that transformed them from secret disciples into being real followers of Jesus Christ and let it be known openly? Well, I want to suggest to you today that the reason they did was because they had been at the cross. They went to the cross. They saw the crucifixion. They saw what happened there. They saw the shame as Jesus was hanging. But they also saw Jesus change that shame into dignity. They saw the compassion of his heart. They heard the words that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They saw Jesus change that shame into a dignified Savior. And they looked into the face of Jesus. They saw the compassion. They saw the mercy. They saw the grace. And folks, they couldn't be silent any longer. They had to tell somebody that they know Jesus. Is that what you're missing today? Are there some of you here today that you really haven't looked into the face of Jesus? You really haven't been to the cross and you haven't seen what he did there? I promise you today, if you take a real good look, if you look in the scriptures and you see what happened to Jesus, you'll no longer be a secret disciple. You can't look at the cross. You can't see Jesus. You can't see what happened there and go away being an unchanged person. Here's what happened to Joseph and Nicodemus. They came forward to Jesus because they had been to the cross. Well, we talk about the men at the burial, just two of them, Joseph and Nicodemus. But now let's talk about next the manner of the burial. What actually took place? What did they do? How did they go about preparing the body of Jesus to go into that tomb? Verse number 40 gives us some explanation. It says, Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in verse number 39, Joseph had received the body. Nicodemus came along, and with him he brought 100 pounds of burial spices. Now there are some people that argue, well, this can't be true. The Bible record can't be true. A hundred pounds of burial spices—that's too much for Nicodemus to carry over a long distance. But let's be reminded that Nicodemus was a rich man. No doubt that he had his servants help him to carry that load. And one hundred pounds for a barrel—they say that's too much. You'd never use that much on one body. But, in fact, it wasn't unusual at all for them to use copious amounts of aloes and spices in the barrel of a great person, a dignified or great man. So how did they go about preparing the body of Jesus? Well, the first thing that they would have done, they washed the body. Now, the Bible doesn't actually tell us that they did that, but that was the custom, that was the manner of the Jews. It was very important for them to wash the body and and even one that didn't have wounds, they would wash the body. But in the case of Jesus, washing the body was a, body was a very important step. Now remember, Jesus is a bloody mess. His back had been beaten. I mean, he was uh, uh, stricken with those sticks, and the nails had been driven into his hands and his feet. His body was literally a mess. And don't you think that as Nicodemus began to wash the body of Jesus... That all that religious training that he had as he grew up didn't come into play? Didn't he start to think about all those scriptures that he read? Things that seemed so confusing in the Old Testament that he really didn't understand what it was talking about. Don't you kind of think that those things came to to the mind of Nicodemus and he was washing the body and the back of Jesus Christ? And wouldn't he have fought? By his stripes we are healed. Don't you know that's what Isaiah said? Hundreds of years before, he said, with his stripes we are healed. And wouldn't Nicodemus be thinking about that as he washed the stripes and washed the back of Jesus? What about when he took the, 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 the rag and he began to wipe his hands and began to wipe his feet? Don't you think that the scripture would have come to his mind? The one in Zechariah that says, where did you get those wounds? Then he shall answer, these are they which was where I was wounded in the house of my friend's. Don't you think that scripture came to his mind? Scripture had been fulfilled. And I believe that we can see Nicodemus washing that body. Proud, religious Nicodemus washing the back and washing the body of Jesus. The one who wouldn't identify with him in his life. Now he's willing there to become a bloody mess himself. He has Jesus' blood all over him. And how ironic it is that as he washed the body of Jesus and washed the blood from that body, that it was in fact the blood of Jesus Christ that had washed him. Isn't that ironic? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So these two rich men, secret disciples, two law-abiding Jews... Here they are, just before the Passover, and now they are willing to become unceremonially clean. What do I mean by that? Well, the law said that a man could not touch a dead body at the Passover time. You couldn't touch a dead body. But here are these two religious Jews, ones who wouldn't identify with him in his life. Now they're at his death, and they are willing to be ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish law. But friends, let me tell you something. They weren't unclean at all. They had the real cleansing. They'd been washed by the blood of the Lamb, the real Lamb of God. And so now they're clean. That's a question for you, isn't it? Have you been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Well, after they washed the body, the next thing that they did was they wrapped the body. There were long strips of linen cloth that they used to wrap the body. They carefully began to wrap it. And with each layer, as they wrapped those strips around, they inserted all the spices and the aloes. The burial perfumes were carefully placed with each wrapping. The myrrh that was used, that was like a fragrant gum. And that would hold those strips of cloth in place. It stuck them together. And so they carefully put that in. Now, in a Jewish burial, they didn't drain the body, the blood from the body. Now, in our, in our uh, funeral homes and mortuaries today, they drain the blood out of the body and replace it with an embalming fluid. Well, the Jews didn't do that. They didn't drain the body. And in the case of Jesus, they wouldn't have anything to drain because Jesus had already poured out his blood for the redemption of his people. So there wasn't any blood. So instead of draining the blood, what the Jews would do, they would put all of these spices, all the burial spices on the body, and that would lessen the stench of the decay. But with the body of Jesus, there was no decay. The Bible says that he never saw corruption. His body never did begin to decay. He came out of that tomb, didn't he? But they wrapped his body very carefully. They wrapped each finger... They wrapped his hands, they wrapped the arms, then they wrapped the toes, they wrapped the feet, they wrapped the legs, they wrapped the hips, they wrapped the torso, they put a turban around his head, and the body was prepared for the burial. And all the time, they're putting in all these 100 pounds of spices on the body of Jesus. Now, curiously, there are some people who don't believe that Jesus had actually died. Remember, there are some people who think, well, he didn't die on the cross. They took him down before he was dead. They put him into the tomb, and then in the coolness of the tomb, Jesus revived, and that's why he came out of the tomb. Don't you think that Nicodemus and Joseph would have noticed if he was alive? Here they are wrapping the body, putting in 100 pounds of burial spices. Don't you think they knew that he was dead? Absolutely he was dead. He was dead when he was in the tomb. They wrapped his body, and if he wasn't dead, they would have smothered him with all the stuff that they put on him. So he was dead in that tomb, no doubt about it. And folks, that is the gospel of Christ, that Christ died and he was buried. And they placed him in the tomb, and then they rolled that stone across the door. Most biographies of great men, great women, they would end right there. Roll the stone across the door, he's dead, he's in the grave. But that's not true with the story of Jesus. He didn't stay in the tomb. He came out of the tomb. Next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk not about a dead and buried Savior, but we're going to talk about a living one. That comes next week. Now, Jesus came out of the grave after only three days. You'll pardon me if I'm going to have to leave him in the grave for a week until we come back to it next week. But we need to understand something we're not really leaving, leaving him in the grave because every Sunday that we come to church, that is a commemoration. It's a memorial that Jesus came out of the tomb. On the first day of the week, he arose, and that's why we're here today. That's why we worship, because he's no longer in the tomb. But now what remains for us is to talk about the meaning of his burial. That's the third area of discussion. We talk about the men. We talk about the manner. Now the meaning of his burial. What did the burial mean? Well, I want to give you three things that we can learn from this burial. The first thing that we can learn is that we can know that our sins are forgiven. Now, this is a very interesting part of the Old Testament law the body of the criminal was not to be left hanging overnight. Now, that's not Roman law. That's the Jewish law. It's the Old Testament law. A body's not left to be out, uh, left hanging overnight. Before sunrise, that body has to be taken down. It has to be removed. It has to be buried. And the reasoning for that was because the Jews thought that once a person had suffered, once he had died, that now his punishment was over. It signified that everything's been done. You can't do anything more to that body. And so for whatever reason, the person might have been slayed. Now the punishment has been born and now it's all over. Well, friends, when Jesus was taken down from the cross, that was a sign that the sin debt had been fully paid. It's all satisfied. All sins have been removed. And you know, when Jesus came out of that tomb, sin did not come with him. All of the sins were left behind. All of those sins are dead dead, and buried, and they're out of the sight of God. You know, the Bible often compares the putting away of sin and the hiding of sin as God casting our sins into the very deepest part of the sea. I think God very well knows what the deepest part of the sea is. The Marianas Trench is the deepest part of the sea, over 35,000 feet deep. And God has taken our sins and he's cast them into the deepest part of the sea. And then he put up a sign that says, no fishing. You're not going to drag them up anymore. God has forgotten them. They've been put behind them. They'll never be remembered anymore. Micah said, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God buries your sin and he never remembers it again. The hymn writer said, living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Buried he carried my sins far away. And that's what the tomb means to those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. He's taken our sins away and he'll never remember them anymore. The burial also shows us something else. It shows us that we can identify with him in baptism. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So here's what happens in baptism. We're buried in the likeness of Christ's death. Now, there are a lot of people who are confused about baptism. Baptism is not primarily a picture of washing. People who baptize infants and those who sprinkle in what they call baptism, they think that baptism primarily represents a washing. But baptism does not represent washing. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ we're baptized to identify with what Christ did, and we do that in a gospel picture. What was it that I just read a minute ago that Paul said? He said, the gospel is how that Christ died how he was buried, and how he arose again. And that's exactly what we picture in baptism. So when you're baptized, that is your public identification with Christ. In that, you show the likeness of what Jesus did for you, and you show that you want to be identified with the person who went through all of that. That's what baptism is all about. Now, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, we have a great example of identification. You may remember that when Naomi was ready to go back to Israel, that she told her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to stay behind. She said, you stay here, I'm going back. And Ruth was very upset about that, and she wanted to go with Naomi. She was insistent that she go with Naomi. Lots of times we use the words of Ruth in wedding ceremonies, but really, these words that I'm going to read in just a moment, they have nothing at all to do with the wedding. What it has to do with is Ruth's desire to be identified with Naomi. And so she said in Ruth chapter 1, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Someone has said that if Ruth had stayed behind and not gone with Naomi, that Naomi would have been ruthless. That's not really the point, though. (laughs) Notice she says, though, Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. You ever gone to a cemetery and noticed all the family burial plots? Sometimes... A husband and a wife and even children, in some cemeteries, they'll share the same headstone. When I was growing up, we lived in a house in Kentucky that was built in 1853. And right next to our house, there was a wooded area where there was a cemetery. And there were people that had lived on that property all the way back into the 1700s. And that family had been buried in that cemetery. Now, the family then was identified by the place that they were buried And folks, when you come to Jesus, there ought to be a desire that you want to identify with him. And baptism is the way that you identify with Jesus. The sacrifice, the burial of Christ, that's how you identify. And so when you are obedient to him, you do want to be buried with him. And if you refuse to be buried with him, then then there's some kind of a problem. Sprinkling and pouring. If you've been baptized in that manner, I'm sorry to tell you, that is not the proper mode of baptism. We take people all the way over here and put them in this baptistry over here and we take them underneath the water and we bring them up out of the water and that represents the death, burial of Jesus Christ. And we symbolize that we have been buried with Christ. Now to date, I've never left anybody under the water for three days before I brought them out. But we do bring them out of the water in order to show that Jesus arose from the dead. So if you haven't been baptized by immersion, then you haven't identified with the burial of Jesus. So if you're saved, what you ought to do is be obedient to the Savior. Now, the third meaning of the burial is that we can experience new life in Christ. I want to go back to the sixth chapter of Romans, because there it says, "...we are also raised to walk in the new life. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life. There will never be new life until you have decided that you are going to die to yourself and that you've been buried to be identified with Jesus. There's another beautiful Old Testament story that gives us a picture of being buried with Christ and new life in Christ. Four years ago, we went through a study of Elijah the prophet. And Elijah was a great man of the Old Testament. He did many, many different miracles. But actually, the person who performed more miracles in the Bible than anyone except Jesus was Elisha. And Elisha was the successor to Elijah. Well, there was a very peculiar thing that happened sometime after Elijah, Elisha died. About a year or so after Elisha died, there were some men who were burying another person. They were burying another man. And as they were burying him, they looked on the horizon and they saw a band of marauding Moabites. Now, they saw these guys coming, and so they didn't have time to bury this man properly. And so instead, they cast him into another grave. Well, it so happened that that grave contained the bones of Elisha. Do you know what the Bible says happened when that man touched the bones of Elisha? It says that he got up, he stood up on his feet. He came back to life when he touched the bones of Elisha. You know what that is a picture of? It's a picture that when we have been buried with Christ, that we will rise to walk in new life. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that baptism is what does this. Baptism is only a picture of what does it. And you show that that has happened to you. When you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you show in a picture in baptism that you have been buried with him and you rise to walk in the new life of Christ. Now, I'd like you to write something on your listening sheet today. If you're an English teacher, you'll pardon this next statement, but I want you to write this down. It ain't over. It ain't over. Now, earlier, I said that the death and the burial, that's where most biographies end. Last month, Lino and his family went down to Simi Valley to visit the Reagan Museum. President Reagan is buried there. He's dead, and there is no more President Reagan. Today you can travel to Arlington Cemetery and there you can go to the grave of John F. Kennedy. There's a flame that's been burning there since November of 1963 called the Eternal Flame. That's where John F. Kennedy is buried. But John F. Kennedy is no more. He's still in the grave. Today you can go to Memphis, Tennessee and you can visit Graceland. And contrary to what many people believe, Elvis is still in the grave. He's still there. Go to Medina, Mohammed, it's still in the grave. Can you sense something about to happen in the story that we've been reading? We've been studying through this, and there's there apparently there's something else going to happen. There's something more to the story. As Pilate sat at supper that night, he must have thought, well, th- this is not over. And that soldier, when he wiped the blood from his spear after he'd pierced the side of Jesus, he had to be thinking, there's a strange air about things. Something's not quite right here. Caiaphas, the high priest who had Jesus condemned to death, who tried him. And here's Caiaphas preparing for the Passover. And Caiaphas had to be thinking, it ain't over, something's about to happen. The apostle John took the mother of Jesus, Mary, into his own home, and he had to be thinking, it's not over. My sermon's over. But I don't want to leave Jesus in the grave. I want you to turn to your neighbor for just a moment, if you would. I just want you to whisper to your neighbor, He's alive. Would you do that for me? He's alive. Now, I want you to say it out loud with me. He is alive. Jesus is alive, folks. And if he's alive, which he is, and he's living in you, it will make a difference in your life. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to preach this message today and to think about the burial of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to the hearts of people, that you might draw them close to you if there's someone here who's not saved, that they might understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is how how he died on the cross, how he was buried, how he arose again, and he did that for us, that we might have eternal life. Would you turn that lost person to you today? Show them that they need to have faith, and you give them the faith to believe. Lord, we pray for those members of our church who, and others who have decided that they don't want to be well-known as disciples. Rather, they want to remain in secrecy and not tell anyone about you. Speak to their hearts as well. If there's someone here today who's never been baptized, they're saved, but... They haven't followed the Lord in scriptural baptism. Would you, would you show them, Lord, that there is a need to be identified with your burial? That's a command, and to be obedient, we must follow that command. Speak to hearts today in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as? We